coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A. COVID deaths are down to about 600 per day. That's the lowest it's been in the last 10 months. Infections are down to about 38,000 a day. That's an 85% decrease. But that news was overshadowed when the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released new recommendations regarding masking. You know, I, I think in, in many ways the CDC kind of caught us by surprise with uh, sort of no forewarning for such a major shift in public policy. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. We're recording this podcast on Monday, May the 17th, 2021. And boy, do we have masking discussions going on in the news and everywhere. So I'm excited to have Greg Poland here to discuss this with us, as well as where we are with COVID vaccines and uh, any other COVID news that he'd like to update us on. Please welcome Dr. Greg Poland, infectious disease expert uh, from Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here, Greg. Good morning, Helena. Good morning. Good to see you again this Monday morning. And you. Well, I have to tell you, Greg, that I went out this weekend and there were no masks uh, in church and in a couple of the restaurants that I went to. And I admit to being just a little bit surprised. Uh, tell us about what the CDC has said and, and where we're going with that. You know, I, I think in, in many ways, the CDC kind of caught us by surprise with uh, sort of no forewarning for such a major shift in public policy. I, I, and I wanna be very transparent about this. So on the healthcare side, no changes. Sure. So anybody that walks into a hospital, a clinic, including Mayo Clinic, will still be masking so that we protect everybody as best we know how. Where the change has occurred is outside of healthcare settings, where they have said, if you've been fully vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask. I personally don't share that level of optimism yet. I think we should be more cautious. And as I went through it, I sort of thought of 12 reasons. And, and I'll just, if you want me to, I'll run through them uh, uh, very quickly. All I'd right. love to hear your 12 reasons. Number one, we are only just now getting to a reduced level over the last two weeks of cases, deaths, and hospitalizations. By the way, we were at this same level almost one year ago. And look at what happened in the intervening year. Uh, number two, over 65% of Americans are not yet fully vaccinated. And only 60% have received one dose. So this feels a month or two premature in my, in my mind. And Greg, um, is that age 12 and up that you're counting now? Or is it a... Yeah, we, we need to cover 12 and up, but this yep. is really 16 and up. Okay. Um, but that's the next point. The fourth point is that kids under 16 have really not yet been vaccinated, right? It's just been mm -hmm. approved and they'll start to release it. The fifth point is that while you and I might respond very well, people who uh, are immunocompromised or taking medications or have diseases that compromise their immune system, they may be, quote, fully vaccinated, but not fully protected. Mm -hmm. And that this messaging, I think, doesn't have that nuance and may give them a false under, understanding. 
The next thing is the variants, particularly the so-called South African variant, does exhibit some level of immune evasion or immune escape. And we can go through some of those numbers uh, uh, later if you'd like. Next is the, the concern, as I mentioned, over the lack of nuanced public messaging rather than a just a broadcast message of the, the public interpreting this as we can burn our masks and don't have to worry about that. I don't think that's really right yet. The other thing is we have a significant movement of people within the US from areas that have very low levels of immunization. You look at counties in South Dakota, for example, right next to us in Minnesota, they're in the 20s in oh, terms wow. of immunization status, as opposed to 50, 60 percent at Mayo Clinic among our own staff, infinitely higher levels of immunization. So now you have these groups mixing, and we have no idea what the, what the outcome of, of something like that um, would be. The other thing is, unlike uh, Israel and some places in the EU, we don't have vaccine digital passports or certificates. So it now depends on, if you will, honest disclosure of your immunization status. We already know how that's worked in the US. We have unfortunately let masking and vaccine acceptance be a political rather than a medical and scientific um, uh, decision. So it, uh, it's sort of the other point I would say is that we don't yet know what the durability of protection is going right. to be. So, so imagine if eight to 12 months after vaccination, we start finding that the breakthrough rate is increasing. The public will feel like we have these massive swings of public health rather than more nuanced, careful, staged uh, steps toward nor normality. And, and finally, I, I guess it sort of begs the practical face value question. Um, how is it that um, you can go to a, a, a crowded store or, or a church and not wear a mask, but if you go to a federal building, you have to wear a mask? What, what's, I, yeah. the public, what's the public health reasoning uh, behind that? I, I cannot articulate one as a, as a physician scientist. So, so really, to me, the decision about masking needs to be a little more nuanced. And to break it down to sort of four categories, it needs to be based on the risk of infection. What is the caseload? Number two, the, the uh, percent vaccinated. We really do need to get toward a herd immunity type number. That's probably in the 70 to 80% of us. Yes, I remember before you'd said it yeah. might even be 80%. And we're not near that. I mean, again, in some counties, we're talking about 20%, nowhere near 70%. So that's the second thing. The third thing is for the individual to consider um, how well their immune system is working. So if they, again, if they have immunocompromising diseases or treatments that might lower their immunity, even though they've been vaccinated. And then finally, the, the role of vaccine variants and the durability of our immune response. So that's a lot of unknowns or partially knowns that I think we should know before we swing public policy so widely.
-hmm. I think there are so many, uh, it, was, it was a surprise, I have to say that, but I think there's so many nuances to this. And one thing I particularly wanted to comment on was those who are immune compromised. I have a colleague who is immune compromised from a transplant yeah. and is concerned that should uh, she wear a mask, that she will be um, uh, stigmatized or that there yeah. will be some difficulty with wearing a mask and sort of yeah. wishes that she had a way to say, no, I need to be wearing this mask because we don't know how effective really the vaccine is in some of those situations. But then she also pointed out that when we talked about wearing masks before, we'd said there were safety when two, when both wear masks rather than just the one individual. I hope people will extend grace. If somebody's wearing a mask, it could be for a variety of reasons. Them wearing a mask is not impacting you at all. Um, so, so why would you say anything? In fact, it's been the other way around. Up till now, by not wearing a mask, you have potentially negatively impacted those around you. <laughs> so it's a bizarre situation. It is a really interesting situation. Um, Greg, what about people who have recovered uh, from COVID, but they haven't been vaccinated because for a while we were telling people to wait uh, three months after they had, had recovered from COVID or, or contracted COVID to uh, receive their vaccination. So what about what does the CDC say about them wearing masks while well, they wait to so, get vaccinated? Yeah, so we're, we're still recommending that they wait uh, that 90 day period or so before getting immunization. They're well protected during those three months. What we know is when they then get their vaccine, their immune response is, if you will, deeper and higher than it is after infection. In other words, after infection, you have a lower level immune response that's broadly spread across all the components of the virus. When you get a vaccine, you have a very highly focused immune response against one protein in the vaccine. And that has been demonstrated to protect people spectacularly well. I mean, again, as a vaccinologist, we just don't see this level of vaccine efficacy uh, among other vaccines. This is truly stellar. So has the CDC spoken on that topic or um, uh, those who've been recovered from COVID and, and their need to mask or not? Yeah, so, so the, 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 the uh, public health messaging is not that nuanced. Okay. They, 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 you know, right now, I don't think anybody has the expectation that if you have recovered from COVID, and you're within that 90-day window, we're not seeing transmission. So okay. I'm not concerned about them in that time period. As time wears on, I'm concerned about them. And you know, both from, um, both from uh, previous infection and vaccination, we do see breakthrough infections. In fact, CDC just published the first uh, 1,359 breakthrough infections. And I think what's important is that 84% of those ended up in the hospital and 16% died. So there's this false impression of 100% efficacy and no risk of breakthrough infection. And that's simply not true. Now, it's very rare, we believe. On the other hand, these are only reports of people sick enough to be hospitalized. 
we don't know about asymptomatic and, and there's a level that maybe we don't care about asymptomatic infection that isn't then transmitted on uh, to others. So we're still learning. There's a lot to learn here. There's a lot of information that has to be generated that then informs public policy. Um, we had a question from a listener, just because we're on the topic of masking and, and protection while you're receiving <clears throat> your immunizations. If an individual has had their first immunization, but um, their family members have not had the opportunity to be vaccinated yet while they're waiting for their second or receive their second, is there concern that they are going to transmit to their family members? So Maybe I'm not the, asking that very if, clearly. If the other family members have been vaccinated, that, that risk is real and they're otherwise immunologically healthy, that risk is almost immeasurably tiny. Okay. Um, the person not yet fully vaccinated, remember that means 14 or more days after the second dose of an mRNA vaccine, 14 or more days after the single dose J&J &J vaccine. That's the definition of fully vaccinated. Prior to that, there is a measurable risk of infection. Okay. Uh, Greg, you said you had some good news for us. Tell us a little yeah. bit about the statistics now. I'm going to share, share some uh, numbers with you. First of all, um, COVID deaths are down to about 600 per day. Okay, mm -hmm. that's the lowest it's been in the last 10 months. Um, infections are down to about 38,000 a day. That's an 85% decrease. This is related to vaccination. Mm -hmm. And there is an apparent cyclical nature to this. Remember that last uh, July, for example, we were down at this same low level and yet had not started vaccination. What happened after that? And we had a major spike again. So none of us know, and it would be false to give anybody the impression that we're done with this. Mm -hmm. It's quite likely that we could have a, another surge. How big depends on how many people got vaccinated this coming fall and winter again. So at least at this point, though, uh, we're, we're, really, we're really, really down in, in numbers, which is a good thing. That is a wonderful thing, but isn't it a crazy world when we're celebrating 600 deaths a day as, as a positive number? That's still tragic. Okay, Greg, tell us a little bit about immunizing 12 to 15-year-olds. Where are we with that? So uh, I think as everybody knows, a week ago uh, now, the, the CDC and ACIP uh, and FDA all agreed on uh, providing are extending the EUA for the Pfizer vaccine to children 12 to 15. It had been approved for 16 and above, now 12 to 15. And they're gonna march that down age band by age band uh, all the way to probably six months of age or so. Um, what did we find out? The vaccine works spectacularly well, no, no surprise. They've got Ferraris as, as uh, immune systems at that age. Um, reactogenicity, side effects, a little bit higher, a little more fever, a little more malaise, a little more sore arm, uh, no serious side effects seen with the, with the Pfizer vaccine in that uh, age group. So what will now happen is they'll start rolling out supplies 
and begin immunizing. It's probably begun already today or tomorrow in a number of locations and then widely. I think um, what we do know is that our ability to immunize children of that age and lower is almost wholly dependent on the parental or guardians sure. um, thinking about a vaccine. So if they're hesitant, they're unlikely to get that child vaccinated. Then what happens this fall? You know, what, what we have seen is that COVID-19, as we get more and more adults immunized, is becoming a childhood disease. And this is a dangerous part of the pandemic because we now have different variants circulating now than eight months ago or a year ago. And I think that nuance has been lost on people. So uh, again, I would highly encourage that people do get immunized and that they do immunize their age eligible children. And as schools are getting out for the summer, probably soon, maybe some have been extended, but uh, what a great time to get this done over the awesome. summer break. Indeed. Now, what my concern is that people will say, well, the numbers are so low, maybe we don't need it. And then they'll be behind as they all try to surge in and get immunizations when we have another surge in the mm -hmm. fall, if we do. Uh, speaking of which, we were talking about masking earlier. When we get to fall again and it gets to be flu season, we know that the masks have been effective uh, for even uh, quieting the flu. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think masks will be a yearly kind of Phenomena. use? Yeah. Um, you know, as a, as a vaccinologist, my answer is I hope so. I hope we do adopt them the same as many Asian cultures have, have adopted them. Um, we've done the experiment now on a global scale for the first time in modern human history. We have essentially no influenza. Isn't that something? I mean, you know, think back to 2017 where, you know, we had uh, just under a million people hospitalized and about 10% of them died of influenza. What, what people call just the flu. We've had a hard time convincing people to get flu vaccines mm -hmm. in part because year by year they vary in, in protective efficacy based on what's circulating. But that combined with a mask, there's no flu. Amazing. It's remarkable. So I hope masking, we... it does work, doesn't it, Greg? It works. <laughs> uh, say, Greg, I recently saw a study that uh, Mayo Clinic had published uh, regarding long hauler syndrome following some more uh, patients who have had COVID. And I'm wondering if you could comment about that. So this is, this is really fascinating, Helena, because we have seen this with other viruses and the medical profession has tended to discount it. With COVID, with sudden large numbers of cases and people from every age and walk of life, there's no question that there's a post-COVID chronic syndrome associated with it, in part related to the trauma of, of something like mm -hmm. that, in part related more than likely to end organ damage caused by the virus. So what Mayo did is they reported on, I think it was the first 100 uh, cases that they had looked at. And this was interesting. You know, the mean age was young, age 45. Not, these are not 80, 90 year olds that you might, you know, off the top of your head, think about them. 
almost 60% of them had neuropsychiatric symptoms. It could be headache, it could be anxiety or depression, it could be impairment in their thinking, their ability to perform at a job. In fact, uh, some 34% of them could not effectively do their own activities of daily living. 84% of them couldn't go to work or drive. This is not a minor phenomenon. This is a serious post-COVID, and I'm going to extend it, I think it occurs after other viral infections too, phenomena that deserves uh, attention in the research and clinical community, deserves research funding, and deserves a concerted effort to understand the mechanism, prevention, and possible treatments. Greg, I've seen some news reports that uh, the COVID-19 vaccine may be affecting women's menstrual cycles. What can you tell us about this? There hasn't been a study published yet that I'm aware of, but I'll tell you again, as a physician scientist, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Um, and why is that? Because I'm not surprised that it happens with other vaccines. Um, you know, a, a woman's menstrual cycle is uh, very exquisitely tuned to what's happening in her body, um, to whether she has fever, to stress and other, many other factors. So I'm not surprised that some women would um, report minor irregularities to moderate irregularities. What I wouldn't want them to do is extrapolate or assume, as I've heard some do, that that means that the vaccine is affecting their fertility. We have no evidence of that. We have no evidence that the vaccine adversely impacts pregnancy or adversely affects the baby, whether the woman is pregnant or lactating. So, uh, you know, with that proviso, uh, I think it does deserve further research. I think that what we've learned so far clinically is that it's very transient, short term. Next cycle, they're back to their usual uh, normal cycle. Greg, I have a couple of listener questions for you just here at the end. We like to get a, some of those in if we can. Sure. And I don't know if there's an answer to this, but is there less uh, long hauler syndrome in someone who has been vaccinated against COVID and then contracts COVID than there would be if they contracted it de novo without being vaccinated? You're right, Helena, in that there are no studies of this. There's no prospective study of this. But uh, so let me tell you what I would expect. I would expect far less of that and likely far less in the way of severity of symptoms. And the reason for that is that the primary reason we believe for some of these long haul symptoms is end organ damage. Well, you've effectively mitigated or reduced that by having some level of immunologic protection. So while I think we're likely to see some, I think it will pale in comparison to people who actually get wild virus SARS-CoV-2 infection. And then Greg, the next question has to do with uh, recontracting COVID. So we have talked in the past about those who have been vaccinated and then gotten COVID to, uh, after being vaccinated, but also those who have had COVID and then were thought to be uh, perhaps uh, protected by antibodies for a period of time, but then contracted COVID. 
what are the numbers on on that right now? You know, the, they, they are very rare, fortunately. I mean, nobody has a precise estimate because we don't really do sero surveys to determine the number of asymptomatic infections or particularly in this season with people having allergies. How do they know that's not very mild uh, COVID infection? We don't know unless we actually screen them. But in terms of infections, that lead to uh, sufficient symptoms that they go in and get tested and are hospitalized, we do have numbers on those. And those breakthrough infections, like I say, are very, very rare, under, well under 1%. In fact, probably in the 0.01% uh, range. And have there been any incidences of individuals who've uh, contracted COVID over and over, say three times? Um, I, I am aware of uh, a case where somebody has had it twice. I'm not aware of a case yet where somebody's had it three times. Um, I Good. wouldn't be surprised over time if that happens. And here's why. We know that with the seasonal coronaviruses, we get infected over and over and over again over time. So there's something about coronaviruses that do over time evade our immune system. So might that same phenomena happen with SARS-CoV-2, particularly in the face of so many people getting infected with it, allowing the virus to mutate and essentially change to a subtly different virus? I think the answer, as I say, is likely to be yes, but rare. That's good news. Greg, I did see another interesting study that I wanted to ask you about. <clears throat> Mayo Clinic did participate in this study with a couple of other institutions, and they had um, uh, were looking for side effects uh, with the vaccine and had given uh, some placebo, which is how you'd compare whether uh, in a randomized clinical trial, whether someone had truly had a side effect from the treatment or not. And in those individuals who'd gotten placebo, so they didn't get the vaccine at all, there were reports of significant side effects, which were the same side effects reported by individuals who had side effects after the vaccine. Why would that be? This is known for every vaccine. Uh, in fact, I was the first to publish this back in 1991, I think it was where we gave uh, a group of people a placebo, a group of people the standard flu shot, and called them two days later and solicited all the side effects they had, brought them back two weeks later, gave them the opposite of what they had gotten the first time, called them two days later. We first asked them, tell us the order that you got, placebo or flu or flu vaccine and placebo. 50-50 flip of the coin, they couldn't tell. For every single side effect, the rates were the same in the placebo recipients, with the exception of a sore arm. That was the only one, the only thing that differed between the two groups. So I'm not surprised at all that that would be true. It's, as you pointed out, Helena, it's why we do placebo-controlled trials. We're trying to understand background rates that occur. It's sort of, and I've asked people this uh, question when I give medical talks, uh, let's say June or July, when nobody has recently gotten flu vaccine, I'll say, how many of you had a headache or a low-grade fever or felt tired? You know, 15, 20% of 
hands will go up. And I said, what would you have blamed it on if a day ago you had gotten the flu vaccine? <laughs> and the light bulb goes on. There's a certain number of these background, we just published a paper on, on this for COVID on background rates. So the, the clue in science is to, to understand ideally simultaneously the background rate and the rate associated with a vaccine or a, a surgery, a maneuver, whatever it is, and compare the two to understand, are they really different from one another? And it's interesting because that probably has something to do with the power of our expectations, that what we expect as individuals sometimes is what we experience, which is really and, interesting. Yeah, and, it, and you know, it works in the positive way too. Yes. In fact, we call it the placebo effect. There's a, a nocebo and a placebo. Uh, effect that occurs. And it, it speaks to the power of our mind-body interaction that we really can uh, create, expect, or experience those sorts of symptomatology. Very interesting. Anything else you'd like to share with us today, Greg? Yes, there is. Um, and, and this I, I, I provide by way of encouragement to people uh, who may not have either gotten their second dose yet or are, are sitting on the sidelines wondering whether they should get vaccine. So it's one thing, as, as you know, Helena, when we do these very carefully controlled clinical trials, it's another thing when we do what's called real world effectiveness studies. In other words, all comers who get the vaccine, some of whom would have been excluded from a clinical trial because maybe they were having a health issue or some other problem. So real world studies now are available with the mRNA vaccines. So let's look at one. This is vaccine e efficacy in Qatar after receipt of the Pfizer vaccine. What did they find 14 days or more after receiving the second dose? If it was the B117 variant, the primary variant that's now circulating in the US, the efficacy against severe critical fatal disease are you ready for this number? Waiting. It's 100%. Wow. The efficacy against mm -hmm. just infection, whether mild or asymptomatic, was 90%. What about for those that got infected with the so-called South African variant? Well, the protection against infection wasn't 90%, it was 75%. The protection against severe fatal uh, uh, or hospitalized disease uh, remained 100%, even wow. against the South African variant. What about studies in South Africa and Israel, in the US, um, some 33 different uh, healthcare sites in the US have contributed to this data. And I'll just read you the numbers here. It was a very, it's an observational study, but a very well done study. 14 days after the first dose, they were at 82% protection. This is, this is the uh, uh, mRNA vaccine. Seven to 14 or more days after it, we were at about 95% with the 95% uh, confidence interval getting up to 97%. So that's what I mean by, you know, if you get two doses of this vaccine, you are almost 100% guaranteed against severe fatal disease. It drops a little bit with symptomatic disease, drops a little bit more for asymptomatic disease. 
but you won't get hospitalized, you won't die, and you're not going to uh, see as your last image before your death a tube intubating you because you can't breathe. So these are, as I say, spectacular. I, I've been, I, I, I just keep saying, I've been a vaccinologist for 40 years. I've never seen anything like this. This is well, amazing. That is some really good news, Greg. I'm glad to hear that. We had talked previously, there was so much concern about whether the variants would be susceptible to the immunization. Yeah. So. Yeah. so, you know, the accumulating data is that they are and remain extraordinarily efficacious against these variants. Again, now, you know, again, symptomatic disease. So not disease that's going to end you, end you up, going to end up with you being in the hospital or, or dying or severe critical disease. Even with the 351, the so-called South African variant, the protection against symptomatic disease was 75% or better. That's astounding. That's wonderful. So Greg, if I was going to sum up a couple of points from today, I would say there is positive news in terms of immunizations, uh, getting immunized and their efficacy, but also uh, that uh, use wisdom when we're thinking about uh, whether to mask or not. And certainly we wouldn't want uh, those who feel they should be masking to feel uncomfortable masking in any way while, I agree. while we're fact, getting immunized. In, in fact, I would say if in doubt, mask. Okay. Right? It's not, it, it, as, as you and I know, because there are times in our training and depending on what our specialties are, that we spend all day in a mask with no adverse effect. When we're out in public and we don't know um, maybe the health of our own immune system, we don't know who's around us, whether they've been vaccinated, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, there was a group that flew here from Paris to do a documentary on my scientific career. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm in a small little place. The people around me have no idea that this group flew here from Paris 12 hours ago, mm -hmm. right? They're thinking mm -hmm. locally. Mm -hmm. Well, I know people around me. They have no idea who they're passing in the store who they're interacting with, where they've traveled, whether they've been vaccinated, whether they've had disease. Uh, we have case reports, very unfortunately, of people boarding airplanes with symptomatic COVID. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I would say- It's a simple, effective measure that works. Yes. Be, be a little more cautious until we have more data. Sure. And Greg, I would just like to point out that I feel like that kind of went in reverse. Typically, you'd be trying to earn that trip to Paris to get yes. filmed, but That's right. it's COVID. Everything's turned upside down. <laughs> thanks for being here, Greg. My pleasure. Our thanks to Dr. Greg Poland for being here today to discuss COVID-19 updates with us. I hope that you learned something today. I know that I did. And we wish each of you a very wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.